Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones, and this is Season 8, Episode 10. Today I'm talking to food stylist, content creator, and food blogger, Tara Bench, also known as Tara's Teaspoon. Tara is the former food editor of Ladies Home Journal, who got her first big break interning for Martha Stewart Living Magazine and worked there for six years. She is now the face and talent behind the Tara Teaspoon brand among her many books. She has a new book out now, Delicious Gatherings, Recipes to Celebrate Together. I really enjoyed talking to Tara about her time working for Martha Stewart and about her wonderful books. I'm going to take you to the podcast right now. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones, and today I'm talking to food stylist, content creator, and food blogger, Tara Bench, aka Tara Teaspoon. Tara is the former food editor of Our Lady's Home Journal, who got her first big break interning for Martha Stewart Living Magazine, and is now the face and talent behind Tara Teaspoon brand. Among her many books, she has a brand new book out now, Delicious Gatherings, Recipes to Celebrate Together. Tara, welcome to for the program. Thank you so much for having me. Tara, I'd like to ask my guests um, on who have a familiar background in food writing, usually the same question because I always find it to be very interesting. Did you have um, somebody who mentored you or kind of taught you to cook growing up? Do you have any food memories of being, you know, cooking with relatives as you were when you were young? You bet. I, I have said it several times uh, in my first book. I credited a lot of my early cooking to my mother. And I would say she's probably the biggest mentor just because I started out with her from a very young age, following her around the kitchen. She'd give me little tasks and she really taught me how to cook. And she's very good at teaching skills and allowing me to try things. And so as a child, I was allowed to experiment and to do little tasks and create dinner with my mom. And so I felt that sense of accomplishment and learned how to cook step by step. And I love that. And I do credit a lot to her. She often says I've surpassed what she could have ever taught me. But you know, that comes with going to cooking school and being more classically trained. But I would say she was my first and best mentor in the cooking space. Do you have any favorites that you used to make when you were young? <laughs> I, yes, I, we baked a lot. So I loved making bread with mom. I mean, the payoff is the best, right? Yeah. You get that smell of homemade bread and then delicious warm bread with butter on it. Um, I loved baking. We would make uh, cinnamon rolls, cookies, oh. you name it. And my favorite thing I think as a child was funny enough, we'd often use a cake mix, but never store-bought frosting. So she always oh. made some delicious homemade frosting to go on a cake mix cake. And that was like magical to me. Very nice. After high school, you went two years in the food science program at Brigham Young University. What led to you initially pursuing food science as a career other than the fact that food science is really cool? <laughs> Food science is really cool. And if I had the chance to go back, maybe I would study it a little more, but it was a little too much chemistry for me at the time and not enough cooking. Um, but I wanted to get a college degree, even though I thought, you know, I love cooking. I want to cook for a living. I didn't know doing what. Uh, and so that's what led me to food science, thinking I'd get that cooking and food background, but also get a science degree, you know, uh, uh, from college. And a couple of years in, I realized 
you know, this isn't as hands-on as I would like. It's probably a great education, but I don't want to be stuck in a lab for the rest yeah. of my life. So I, I switched to culinary arts and switched colleges. Now you next went to Utah State and enrolled in their culinary arts nutrition program. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that experience is like for you? Yes, you know, that was very unique and I have a hard time comparing it to anyone else's experience because at the time I transferred to Utah State to pursue the more hands-on culinary education, the program was only a year old. So I was part of the second graduating class and I often tell people we were the guinea pigs. They still didn't have the curriculum figured out or who was teaching what classes, uh, but the professors and the nutritionists, you know, Dean and everyone involved was very committed to this new program that was teaching people nutrition and dietetics and hands-on culinary arts. And we all were encouraged to choose a minor. And so most of my classmates chose accounting or business management because they wanted to become chefs or restaurant owners or caterers and own their own business. And I ended up choosing journalism as my minor. So I got that culinary arts as well as the writing and the journalism. And it was a great preparation into the rest of my career. And that was good for you because you later came to work for Martha Stewart Magazine for six years, and you had an internship that got you into that um, initially. Can you tell us how you got the internship and what it was like working for Martha Stewart Living Magazine? Yes, it was. It's kind of a funny story at the time. It was really hard. <laughs> I obviously switched colleges. So my internship as part of my degree came after my senior year just because of timing. And so in order to get my diploma, I needed to find an internship. And a lot of my classmates were, as I said, going to restaurants in Las Vegas or big catering houses and doing an internship. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be in food service per se, but I loved cooking. And so I ended up calling every magazine I could think of in the country that I thought had a test kitchen or food in their magazine and saying, could I do an internship with you? Could I work in your test kitchen? And I have to say, the funny thing was, I didn't know what a test kitchen was. I just wanted to make the food that I saw in all my favorite food magazines. And so I called all of these places and the person on the other end said, oh, we already have our interns or no, we don't take interns. And one of the only magazines that said, sure, was Martha Stewart living. And the test kitchen director said, well, we've never gotten an intern from Utah State, but you can come out and interview. So I flew out to New York and did a cooking interview for Susan Sugarman, who was the test kitchen director. And it was very hard. I was so new at all of these cooking skills that I messed up a few times but she gave me specific tasks and I had to do that within a few hours or the day I was there for the day. And by the end of it, she said, well, you're not a really great cook, but you're really nice. And I begged, I basically said, I'm a really fast learner. I don't know anything about this industry, but I want to learn. So a few days later, she called and said, you can come and be our intern. And I was 
thrilled and scared and all of the emotions that you can imagine. What was it like working for that magazine? I mean, it's, it's one that we all love. And, and when we see it, you know, in our mailbox or at the newsstand, it's always thrilling to see that cover for the first time and to, you know, to kind of anticipate what's in it. And I know every year I can't wait for like the seasonal ones to come out, like the fall ones and the Christmas ones. So it's always so exciting. Was it an exciting place to work as well? It, it was. And you said the word thrilling. I think that was one of my main feelings being there uh, along with it was so new and big and scary to, you know, right out of college, a 22 year old going to New York City and starting this job and not knowing a lot about the industry. So while it was very thrilling, it was a bit nerve wracking. And I really dove in and just learned so much every day, every experience. And it was like a fire hose of information and experiences. Um, but like you said, it was uh, that many years ago, it was still a very iconic magazine as it is today. Oh yeah. And yes, you wanted to see what was on the cover. You wanted to see what they were going to teach you in that magazine. It was fantastic. And I remember going and loving to see the back end of creating, you know, Turkey 101 or how to make the best chocolate pudding or how to make foie gras in your kitchen. You know, all of that, it was esoteric. It was accessible all at once. It was exciting. And I got to see the behind the scenes. And not only that, I got to be a part of it. And I was testing those recipes for the editors. And I was learning how to do food styling and recipe creation from these people that I thought were the best of the best. And at the time, they really were. That was the best of the best in the food lifestyle arena. Now, you later would become the food director for the prestigious and well-regarded Ladies Home Journal. Was this when you began to see yourself as a food influencer? Ah, good question. Food influencer. Uh, you know, I probably fought that term for a while, but I was so proud and loved being the food director at Ladies Home Journal. Um, I probably didn't even realize this when I first started the job, but I came to have such an appreciation for the legacy of that magazine. It was one of the first women's magazines in the country. And when I got there, it was almost 130 years old. And I am so sentimental. I love history. And once I learned more about the history of that magazine, I just was so dedicated and fascinated to its cause, sharing stories with women, sharing teaching moments with women, helping them make an everyday dinner in their homes for their families. And I got to create that content and I loved it. And I loved sharing that history and those values. And I was really sad when they closed the magazine. It was about 136 years old when they shuttered that magazine. But yes, I loved being a part of that small team that created that legacy and kept that momentum going. Now you went on from this to become a very influential, well-known food blogger. How did this come together for you? Well, I have to say I featured many food blogs 
bloggers, when I was the food director at Ladies Home Journal, we started to say, hey, these food bloggers are interesting. Let's put them in the magazine. So we would share some of their recipes and feature food bloggers. And I loved my job. I loved what I did in food publishing and in print. And I often said, oh, I would never want to be a food blogger. And so that's the funny thing because I'm now a food blogger. <laughs> but several years ago, I thought, I wouldn't want that as my job. I love printing recipes and having my things shared in a magazine. And so, yeah, I, I kind of saw what that world was like. And so when I left the magazine world, I still wanted to share my recipes. Turns out you do that on a blog and a website. And so I created a little, what I called recipe website. And a few years later, I had a sweet friend who had a great marketing background that said, Tara, you're a food blogger and you can monetize this and this can be your profession. And I pushed back for a little while and then I embraced it. And I've had to learn so much about that industry, but now I love it. Now, where did the name Tara Teaspoon come from? <laughs> it, it was a nickname that I had quite a few years ago. I had a friend who knew I cooked for a living and she was just a funny, would say off the cuff comments. And one day she said, Tara, I'm going to call you Tara Teaspoon because you're not big enough to be a tablespoon. And it's true. I'm not even quite five, two in height. And so she kind of hit the nail on the head and gave me that nickname. And years later, when I was creating a food brand, I kind of reverted back to that nickname. One question I always have for people that work in publishing, because I've worked kind of by proxy a little bit in publishing as well. So I always see this one thing that's a constant. Um, you're always working on, let's say, you're working on fall uh, recipes in spring, and you're working at Christmas stuff in the height of summer. Is that a little bit surreal for you to be doing? <laughs> that's a good question, Dean. And you know, I'm so used to it. After over 20 years in that industry doing that, it seems normal, but yes, I think it is kind of funny that I'm creating Halloween ghosts and witches and making Thanksgiving pie, usually in July and August. And I used to laugh because by the time I would go visit home and family for Thanksgiving, I had already eaten Thanksgiving about three <laughs> because, and in one year, because yeah. in the summer, we start creating Thanksgiving recipes for magazines and for publishing and we create the recipes, we cook them. Then they go through a process of cross-testing. So we make them again to make sure the recipe works. And then we make them another time for the photo shoot to make them beautiful in pictures. So I've eaten it three times before I head home in November to eat Thanksgiving with my family. And so it's kind of, you know, a little bit of a letdown. I'm like, ah, I've had this. Now, I wanted to ask you, um... Your first cookbook came out in 2020. This was the beginning of your quarantine. And this, I talked to a lot of um, authors who have the, um, who've ha who have been doing writing in, during the quarantine or have had books come out during the quarantine. And, um, you know, they talk about how it was like and the hardships they went through that other, that were kind of unprecedented. This is all kind of new ground for so many of us. And, this has been, you know, particularly challenging for so many people. So was this, um, was, and also I want to mention this is Live Live Deliciously, you know, your first big cookbook. 
Um, what was this like for you? I have to say, I, it was my first cookbook, as you said, and I didn't know any different. So I was very excited to plan and go on a book tour where I could travel and see people and sign books and visit bookstores. And so not knowing how the pandemic and the shutdown would go, my team and I were planning that book tour, that a traditional book tour. And I was looking forward to that because it was going to be my first. And as we got closer, we realized that nothing was going to open and we were truly in a shutdown when that book came out. And so we pivoted and created a virtual book tour. And what was interesting is the publisher and the publicist, no one had ever created a virtual book tour. It wasn't ever needed. And so it was new to all of us. And I think that was to my advantage because we were able to do whatever we wanted virtually and create these opportunities to connect with people over Zoom, over social media, and through the mail. I was mailing out signed copies of my book because I couldn't go and visit people. And I think there were some plus and pluses and minuses. And the pluses were on my virtual book launch event. I had over 300 people attend that Zoom event. I would never have had 300 people come to a bookstore signing event for my launch. And I was so happy that I could connect with that many people and share my book. And we had virtual cooking classes. We had virtual Q and A's where I really was able to take the time and answer people's questions because I wasn't at a book signing hurrying and signing books and sending them on their way. So there were some special moments about being in shutdown. And now that I have my second book out and I've been able to go on a traditional book tour, I realize there are great things about that as well. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Now, live life deliciously with Tara's teaspoon recipes for busy weekdays and leisurely weekends had a lot of really good intel for people that are maybe new to the kitchen, like people that are homemakers that are doing a lot of the cooking for the family. There's a lot of good information, such as stocking the pantry, what pots and pans to pick out. What were you thinking when you did, when you conceptualized the book? That book, I wanted to put everything and all the things in, and I had to hone it down to what I felt was most important for, as you said, homemakers and really good cooks and novices and people who are just starting out enjoying cooking and time in the kitchen. And so I created those first chapters and paragraphs in the book to invite everyone in to the skills that I had learned through my career and what I had been questioned the most in my career. You know, I get questions all the time. What are the best pots and pans? How do I take care of my kitchen knives? What small appliances should I invest in? And so I had that opportunity to share that at the beginning of the book to really introduce people to the, the skills 
of cooking and enjoying your time in the kitchen. And so that was the beginning of that book. And then recipes that used those small appliances, used your knife skills and made it fun to bring people together around food. Now, this is a, it's a, it's a, you know, pretty big book. It's also beautiful and very well done. Did you learn anything as far as publishing? I mean, you had a background in publishing already. Did that kind of prepare you for making this book and working with a publisher to create the book? I thought it would. Oh, I thought it would. <laughs> I thought, oh, I've been in the publishing industry for this long. I can write a cookbook. But I will tell you, Dean, writing a cookbook is very different than publishing 10 recipes a month in a magazine. It was incredibly challenging. And I learned a lot. I had seen it done. I'd had friends and coworkers write cookbooks. And I thought, I can do this. But creating a book that flows, that you want to flip to the next page and organizing the chapters so they make sense and making sure those chapters have a variety of recipes and flavors. That was all a bit of a challenge. And I hadn't had to do that on such a large scale before. And so I learned a lot and found it so rewarding because it really was a birth of this content that I worked so hard on. Delicious Gatherings Recipes to Celebrate Together came out this year in September to rate reviews. Now you talk a little bit about in the intro about the, your belief in the power of food to bring people together. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I have had the pleasure of creating food and recipes for people. And I have found over the years that when you cook for people and share that food, or when you bring people into the kitchen and cook together and share a meal together, those connections last a lifetime. Those connections are memorable and they're typically enjoyable if you leave politics out of the conversation, <laughs> yeah. but they are, they're special moments and they're special for all ages. Isn't it fun that we can bring kids and grandparents and parents and friends and strangers together around the table and have these moments of connection. I love it. I particularly love the way, I mean, I love the whole cookbook, but I particularly love the way you cook the holiday meals because that's something I'm like, I was looking at because I'm thinking about that right now. Like I know most people don't care. They're not even thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff. I am, I'm looking at all that going. I got to plan this, I got to plan it. So um, I really like the unique method of cooking the turkey that, where you had it deconstructed. I thought that is brilliant. I'm still going to use that this year. Can you talk that a bit? Because you're known of, you have a reputation as being Jedi level turkey preparer. <laughs> but do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I have to say, I wanted to put a Thanksgiving dinner in this book. And like you said, uh, I created meals and meals worthy of a holiday. So the whole first chapter is five menus that you could serve at a holiday meal or a family gathering or a Sunday dinner, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you name it. But I gave you the entire menu so you wouldn't have to guess what side dishes go with this and what should I add to this and how can I make this a beautiful meal spread? So I have given you all of those menus in that first chapter and the Thanksgiving meal, I wanted to be a mix of sort of traditional Thanksgiving foods and 
new flavors, new techniques. And so how do you do that when everybody is so sentimental about Thanksgiving, right? They love grandma's turkey or they love mom's sweet potatoes. And so it kind of is a mix of all of that, like those sentimental flavors and new techniques. And that turkey is one of my favorite things in the cookbook. It took a while to develop and perfect that recipe. But over the years, I have cooked so many Thanksgiving turkeys for so many Thanksgiving articles that I thought, how can we make this different? We run into the same challenge every year. The oven is taken up by a turkey that has to cook for about three hours. Yes. <laughs> right? And then how do you make the rolls? How do you roast the vegetables? How do you do all of this? It's hard. And people do it every year, but something's cold or something has to sit and dry out while the oven's being used. So this method of breaking the turkey into five parts instead of cooking a whole bird makes the bird to cook faster. So a whole bird, it takes a long time for the heat to penetrate into the center and then brown the outside and have this perfect bird. And that's why it takes three hours. So by breaking it down and spreading it out on a sheet tray, you still get the same flavors and you get the same drippings for that lovely gravy, but it only takes about an hour in the oven. It's incredible. I mean, and that's, I mean, God, compared to some of the stuff I've done in the past, I'm just thinking this would be such a revelation to have. I'm so grateful for this because this really is going to be a game changer for me this year. So thank you. Good. I love holiday meals, but I also have a real soft spot for Sunday dinners. Uh, I, when I was young, we used to go to church and then afterwards we go to Sunday dinner at the grandparents' house. And that always is something I loved. And I try to recreate that for my family. And I love your section in the cookbook where you talk about this. Do you want to talk about this a little bit and how Sunday dinners are kind of important to you growing up and how they're important to you now? Thanks. And I am just so touched that you have the same experience. I think as so many people around Sunday dinner and, you know, I think there's articles written about how we're losing that Sunday dinner tradition, but there are other ways that we're gathering and connecting to people. But back to that Sunday dinner, I grew up that way as well. We would go to church and then we would have a really delicious meal that maybe was simmering in the crock pot or roasting in the oven. And the flavors were always so tasty and it was just comfort food and special food because mom had the day to cook instead of rushing off to all of these tasks. And so recreating that, again, I wanted to bring that familiarity and that comfort to Sunday dinner, but we have so many new flavors and I think people eat differently now. We have more vegetables and fresh flavors and whole foods. And so how do you combine all of that? And so, of course, in my Sunday supper, I have a pot roast and it's a very simple pot roast with just rich flavors, simple flavors. You've got the carrots and the onions cooked in with the juices of the meat. And so that's that classic flavor. But then I added a fun salad. It's my take on a Waldorf salad. And I grew up with my mom's Waldorf salad that was so yummy. It was celery and grapes and apples and all chopped up and then tossed in sweetened whipped cream. So it was almost like dessert. That sounds good to so, me. Yeah, it was, it was great. So that was a memory for me. And I just wanted to update it and make it a little more sophisticated. So you'll 
see my Waldorf salad with radicchio and buttermilk dressing. And it's mm. really nice to share with people. And the rest of that dinner is homemade bread. It's a savory dill bread that's delicious. Some creamed spinach, because who doesn't love creamed spinach with roast beef? And then we often had mashed potatoes and gravy. But I thought, what's a little more modern and maybe quicker to make because we're not always cooking all day. So I did some sheet pan potatoes and I thinly sliced potatoes and roasted them on a sheet pan with thinly sliced onions. And it's this delicious savory side dish and you get the crispy bits and the buttery soft bits of potato all at once. And to top it off, I did some green beans because we always had green beans with loads of butter on. Mm-hmm. But to sophisticate that and update it for today's cooking, I did a nice shallot vinaigrette over Mm. some sautéed green beans. So it's, as you can see, it's kind of mouthwatering and comforting, but updated and fresh for Sunday dinner. I'm getting hungry and I just had breakfast. I can't believe (laughs) it. I um, really love the dill bread too. I I haven't tried it yet, but I'm going to make it because I'm really looking forward to making that with uh, tuna sandwiches. Oh, it just sounds it's brilliant. so good on sandwiches. Now, I have been able to try some of the recipes. I don't always get to because sometimes I get the cookbooks right before I do the interviews. Oh, but yours I've had for a while. So I've been able to actually open up, look through it. And my family, I've made them the banh mi burgers, which I love because I love banh mi anyway. And I thought just this combination together with the chicken burger in there was just was incredible. The blue reef, that, sorry, the blue ribbon beef and chicken chili we had yesterday and it was gorgeous. The family loved it. They wanted it again. And I'm going to try today the spiced honey lime chicken, which I have prepared, getting prepared. I made the banh mi burgers and the chili this last week for the family to enjoy. And they both wanted again. What kind of feedback have you had from the book since it came out? Well, I have to say you're one of many who have made and enjoyed that chicken banh mi burger. And so it's kind of a sleeper hit of the book. I'm yeah. so excited. I was going to do a traditional banh mi sandwich. And I thought, but I, you know, that's kind of hard to make. And true, truth be told, traditional banh mi has pate on it. Yeah. And that is not a frequently used ingredient in most homes. And so I wanted to make those flavors accessible to everyone. And I think it hit the nail on the head. It uh, seems like a lot of people like that chicken banh mi burger and all the Thai flavors and the quick pickled vegetables are there. So, but yes, I have had some great feedback about the book and it warms my heart because I really wanted to, like I said, bring some new flavors to people's kitchens while still having the recipes be very accessible. And by accessible, I mean, you can go to your local grocery store and get 99.9 of these ingredients. Um, There are a few you know, spices that I use like sumac or za'atar that maybe your local grocery store doesn't have, but I will give you flavor descriptions for those seasonings or sauces and suggest swaps if you can't find it. But really what I wanted to do was introduce people to twists on classics and some, what I call new pantry staples. So 10 years ago, we didn't have sriracha sauce in our fridge door. But now don't you think so many people have a jar of sriracha sauce or 
you know, those seasonings and flavors that are new, rice, wine, vinegar. A lot of us didn't have that in our pantries 10, 15 years ago, but it's kind of a new staple. And I want to cook with those things. They bring so much fun flavor and variety to our meals. And so I've used a lot of those new pantry staples in my recipes. Now the photography, I mean, it's a beautiful book all the way through, but the photography by Ty Meacham is, is really amazing. Were you able to have any um, hand in that? I know that sometimes it's difficult for the authors to kind of be part of that process. Were you able to uh, help in that regard? Well, for better or for worse, I wore a lot of hats in the creation of this cookbook. So yes and no. I left the photography up to Ty. He is a very talented photographer and his lighting is beautiful. Yes. And uh, so yes, I left that to him, but I was involved in pretty much every aspect of the art direction and the flow of the book and the creation of each image. So I am not talented in all of those areas. So I brought Ty in to do the photography and I brought Veronica Olson in to do the prop styling. And that just means she gathered all of the linens and the beautiful dishes and she created the beautiful scenes that I was able to put the food into. And so all of that teamwork came together, but I did the food styling. So I cooked the recipes and put the food on the set and made it beautiful and garnished it. And I had a team of helpers that were helping chop vegetables and cook things in the kitchen. And then together with Ty and Veronica, we chose the color schemes and the look of each image so that as you flip through the book, nothing is jarring. Everything looks sort of cohesive, but exciting. And you want those images to make you feel like you wanna sit down at the table. Well, that job was achieved. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What food writers have influenced you through the years? You know, a a variety. I think aspects of a lot of food writers. Um, I have been influenced. I really love Jamie Oliver, the chef from the UK. I've always been influenced and loved his energy and how he gets people excited to cook just by the way he's excited. And I really tried, whether I do it or not, I've tried to share that excitement for things in the descriptions of my recipes and in my books. And so I hope that comes across because that was a great influence to me. And I think Ina Garten is a fun influence that I've had in my life. I've been able to work with her and cook with her in her home, you know, for magazine articles and things like that. And she has this calming sense in the kitchen, right? Like, hey, let's just come in here. We can all make this, you know, beef bourguignon. It's going to be easy, even though there's technical skills involved. I I love the way she presents things in a relaxed, engaging manner. So those are just a few people that I've loved following and thought, how can I incorporate those personalities into my books? I wanted to ask you um, a question I didn't put on the list, but it just came up as I was talking to you. You know, I was thinking, Martha Stewart Living, you were with them for six years, and Ladies Home Journal, both of these things were hugely iconic to the American consciousness. And I don't think that either one of them, I mean, we all have huge respect for Ladies Home Journal. It's an iconic publication that had a huge impact. But I've always felt like they've had much larger 
impact on the food consciousness in America than they get credit for. What's your take on that? I think you are spot on. I think, especially talking about Martha Stewart, there are things that we do in our homes and ways that we cook and ingredients that we use that her magazine introduced to the nation. I really believe that. And I think it slowly happened, sure. But I think she introduced things, modernized things from the past even, and brought them into our everyday homes in such a unique way that people were excited to, you know, garden in a certain way again, or cook in a certain way again, or use an ingredient that was quote unquote old fashioned. And she modernized it and made it fresh and made us feel like we could do that. And so I think that was very important. And then if you look at Ladies Home Journal as that iconic uh, historical magazine, it really was. I mean, they started out, if you look back at the turn of the century, Ladies Home Journal magazines, they were of the time. They were writing articles telling homemakers how to direct their servants to make dinner and to go grocery shopping, because that was the era. It was how do you run a home? Oh, you have a whole staff. So how do you manage that staff? And then as the decades went by, it was, how do you use a food processor? What is a food processor? What's a toaster? I mean, this was introducing the nation of homemakers to new appliances and things like cake mixes and canned food. How do we use those in our homes? How do we use refrigerators? And I love that that was how the the country and cooking changed and grew and became what it is today. It's from those articles in those magazines. Absolutely. So I know this is an unfair question to ask as you're in the midst of a publication, uh, a publishing blitz uh, for your new book, but what's next for you? Oh, that is a good question. I've had that a few times and I just kind of go blank. (laughs) I really am in the middle of all this. And I have to say, I'm most looking forward to really diving into creating content on my blog again. I've had to take a break while I write cookbooks and market these cookbooks and be on a book tour. But the blog is where I get to share recipes consistently and Every day, I think I'm excited to start cooking again and getting new content up on the blog. Tara, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I want to remind our listeners that Delicious Gatherings, Recipes to Celebrate Together is available online for purchase through major retailers and also at better bookstores near you. So please uh, check that out. You're not going to be sorry. I highly recommend it, especially uh, for the Sunday dinners and holiday portions of the books, which are invaluable. You're going to thank me. Tara, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Tara Bench, also known as Tara Teaspoon, whose new book, Delicious Gatherings, is sold in all better bookstores. Tomorrow, we're going to have an encore presentation of my interview with Rose Levy Berenbaum in honor of her brand new cookbook, The Cookie Bible, which is out today. If you follow my podcast and enjoy it, you can uh, go to the link and buy me a coffee if you like my work. Uh, the link is in the bio. And if you want to help us promote this podcast, please share these episodes with a friend on social media. You can share on social media with the tag, Well Librarian. 
Follow the Well Season Librarian podcast on Spotify and get notified when new episodes are released. You can subscribe to the podcast newsletter and get updates on my articles and more at the link for Substack. Our podcast theme song, Talk About Love, is sung by the band Kitty Cat Fan Club. Their label, Asian Man Records, has given permission for its use. You can check them out and other bands on this label and get an album at asianmanrecords.com. Hope you all have a really great week and you keep on cooking. I've been getting better, better than you.